0: Hey, Nick. Hey, Tom. Do you know what GPUs have in common with uh, San Francisco tourists who visit in the summer? I have a guess. They go brr,
1: <laughs> just like our podcast. Um, welcome to the retort. <laughs>
0: What are we doing here, Tom? Uh, we're talking about AI. We're talking about the culture of AI, the people who build it, the people who think about it, uh, the people who have hot takes on it, uh, the overlaps between those things. Were and our feelings not, about all those things, yeah. Were there not already enough people doing this? No. I think we're, I think our lens is unique and what is our lens well uh our lens is uh expressed in our our symbol of the retort i think which is uh, a symbol of two things uh for me it's a symbol of distillation so there's a lot of stuff being said about ai right now uh much of which is not good uh both in its substance and the people saying it uh and the purpose of a retort is to boil off Uh, things that are impure for the sake of distilling things worth holding on to. So that's one thing a retort represents. The other thing it represents is uh, something else that's been lurking in AI for several years, which is the fact that uh, in many ways it's a form of alchemy. Uh, And so the retort is a a flask that's used in a lab uh, to try to distill things that are pure from things that are impure in a way that was kind of historically at the boundary between alchemy and what we would now call chemistry. And so there's a need for this shift, I think, away from this world of alchemy and AI towards something much more scientific uh, and also much more responsible. Uh, And so that's what the retort is. That's what we're doing here. Take a step back. How do you actually feel about AI? Uh, I feel about AI uh, that it's very weird. Uh, and that it's also expressing and itself distilling a lot of what's weird about the world right now uh, politically, economically, culturally. Uh, and I think a lot of people are feeling that now. And it's not really clear what to do about that and how to think about what to do about that. Um, And unfortunately, the people who are in a position to be talking about those things um, are not always uh, well-grounded in their assumptions, let's say. And I don't know that I'm well-grounded in my assumptions either, but I think that I have a perspective on this that needs to be explored and that I need to think through more clearly. And for me, that's what the retort is going to be about. Not just sorting out what I think is wrong and what others are saying, but in also filtering through my own biases and prejudices and assumptions on the topic of specifically this kind of AI society problem that we're all grappling with.
1: Yeah. And as someone who's been on the technical side i I've myself AI through this sort of alchemy approach. It's it's, it's like a great kind of internal tear between this optimism of what the technological revolution represents and then also the concern with the kind of cultural mass gravitating around certain issues and how like there are current issues and there are future issues and the way that we communicate about that boundary is just hard to keep track of and moving really fast and people don't invest the requisite time to kind of understand how everything is, is, or is not changing and just kind of makes most of the communication hurt when you have a kind of value and scientific approach. It just kind of hurts to try to absorb it.
0: (laughs) Uh, yeah, that resonates. I mean, yeah, communicating about the boundary, uh, is the right way to is the right way to say it. Um, and you know maybe it's worth me saying a little bit about who I am and where I'm coming from on this since um, I, I have a PhD from UC Berkeley. Uh, my PhD is in uh, machine ethics and epistemology. Uh, that's a degree that I made up in 2016 uh, when it became clear that AI was going to transform you know, basically everything that I, I cared about studying at the time, I cared about studying, you know, political thought, sociology, economics, culture. Uh, and I was living in the midst of this machine learning revolution. And I thought, oh, that's important. I should study that. Um, and being at Berkeley, have uh, this, you know, this perk, you can actually technically decide a PhD if you want to. So, uh, I did that. I did that at just about the time that a series of new, labs and initiatives and communities were taking off uh, on the kind of computer science side of the, the culture there. So I spent the next several years kind of kind of vibing with them, getting to know them and different, and different kinds of people there, uh, including you, Nate. Um, but my contribution, I think, to those conversations was and remains um, to provide this perspective of a humanist, certain scientist, critical theorist, maybe into the heart of what are often thought of as technical questions, uh, and in some ways are, but are are also not reducible to technical questions. And uh, there's a lot to say there, but that was was my entry point into this world.
1: Yeah, I feel like I started like 18 months later in late 2017 when showing up at Berkeley, and I also kind of got the initial wave crashing over as like, this is the thing to do. And now it's to the point where we felt late At the time, and the people that we look to for advice make us feel like we're late to the field. But the vast majority of people we represent people who are learned and studied and practicing, and they think of us as early. And when there are growing voices and growing participation, kind of this need for more perspectives that I, I like, it seems like the perspectives are not growing with the rate that the influence of this is this system of AI is growing into society and technology. Uh, that's another way of describing what we want to kind of open up to.
0: Yeah and let, let me say something uh, again to return to the alchemy point. So this there's been a series of you know talks uh, at, at conferences and also a lot of kind of vibing on Twitter and other social media platforms about this kind of alchemy dimension of, of AI, you know, are we really just sort of talking about, uh, you know, how much, how much data you can throw at something before it becomes sentient or how many angels fit on the head of a neural net or something like that. Um, and to be clear, um, I don't think there's anything wrong with alchemy per se, um, it's just, that it's not science. And if you, if you look historically at at what alchemy was, it was basically a group of very, very smart people spread out, you know, across across Europe and and much of the rest of the world, who were trying to do, for lack of a better word, you know, magic um, with elements. And these were quite brilliant people, uh, and and their theories were often quite interesting. But the problem is that they were not rigorous in the way we would now talk about you know, science having a kind of method to it that's distinctive that enables you to know uh, what you're concluding from the evidence that you're inviting from some experiment. But it also wasn't politics in the sense that it wasn't reflective of legitimate disagreements between people, factions, communities, parties. Alchemy was sort of an amalgamation of both of these things. This spirit of objective inquiry on the one hand, and this spirit of just open contestation on the other. Um, and that's sort of what I mean when I, when I talk about AI as alchemy right now, is that we're sort of combining topics that either need to be made much more rigorous or much more contestable. Um, and to be clear, I don't think there's anything wrong with alchemy. And I think that to the extent that we don't yet know how to make AI more scientific, maybe we should just be better at doing alchemy. <laughs> and, you know, as a historian, uh, at a certain point I realized, um, you know, beyond just trying to to do a better job building AI and making it more rigorous in its setup, um, I should just learn more about alchemy. So I think one of the themes of our conversations might be um, some stuff I have to share about that, because I think the the versions of alchemy that are being pursued right now are not the ones that are most conducive to uh, this kind of more honest engagement with contestable questions, uh, sometimes spiritual questions, sometimes questions that are at the heart of what we mean by what a good system is. Uh, and there are other paths that were taken historically that we're not taking right now in those questions that, um, I think we have something to learn from. So as a historian, I think that's what I would also bring to bear to these conversations.
1: there's many directions to kind of take this as the directions of institutions and what science, where, where science is in the state of AI right now. There's kind of the more directions of history. Um, where, do you, like, where do you think we should start? I think we should cover kind of both some scientific history and both institutions. Maybe we continue the history phrase phase as Oppenheimer was really popular weeks ago. I got to see it a couple days before this recording. I was late to the party having read a lot of the book going into it. It's like how people like to make the comparisons between nuclear and AI and artificial general intelligence, AGI, a word that'll surely trigger one of us at certain times. And we should probably address what is similar and what is not. And then we can kind of get to the more profound metaphors. Cause I think there are simple things that like you can track uranium a lot more easily than you can um, code. It's like uranium has a radioactive signature that is much easier to regulate in some ways than code. There's kind of the basic first-level arguments, but they kind of lead into a much more kind of deeper discussion of science, and I'm sure philosophers of science have continued to debate this for a long time. Like, what is your central point as as you access this metaphor?
0: Right. I mean, I think just briefly to sort of review, you know, there have been a lot of facile comparisons between, um, you know, the world of J. Robert Oppenheimer and the world of AI right now. Um, and I guess you, you referred to several of like what you just said. Um, maybe the most provocative of those is this idea that, uh, AI in the vein of like an artificial general intelligence or an AGI is impending, possibly inevitable. Uh, or just possible, and that its emergence would constitute, to put it mildly, a new world order uh, in every sense of the term. Uh, And so a lot of people, uh, you know, both believers in that, and I think also non-believers in that, have kind of looked back to this context of, you know, the 1940s, World War II, emergence of like the harnessing of nuclear power nuclear fission, And it's weaponization as maybe that provides some lessons for the present moment. And I guess this is sort of where, um, you know, I step in kind of as a, as a historian institutionalist, uh, to sort of, you know, so I've seen the movie, um, I've actually seen it twice. Uh, I read the book that it is based on American Prometheus, uh, the biography, uh, that came out, I think in 2005, some time ago, um, and. I'm also a fan, you know more broadly of Christopher Nolan's movies and as you know there's some interesting parallels to his other work here. But I think what what stands out for me um, about the movie, the depiction of, of Oppenheimer and his story in the film, is that the parallels to AI right now are powerful and resonant, but they're very different than the ones that I was just describing and that I think most people see uh, in this story. So I really don't think that the most interesting parallels uh, are between like AGI and nuclear weapons. Yeah, between... like
1: to jump in, the, the they they all knew they were building a bomb and everyone is trying to build powerful AI systems. But the end point, of this is the whole thing of like the AI safety concerns is that we're going towards something that we don't know. So like the whole acting, like the whole like, grand dance that we're on is fundamentally
0: I think that, I think that the, yes, the fact that Oppenheimer is a movie about scientists (laughs) who understand the mechanisms of what it would take to build a bomb. The uncertainties matter, but the uncertainties are almost entirely at the level of the engineering. Right. There's the, there are these debates over like and the atmospheric
1: ignition. Exactly. <laughs> but yes, but um, that's, that's not really that real.
0: It's not really that relevant. I mean, I think for dramatic purposes, they overplayed it. But yeah, I think um, that's that there's a little bit of window dressing there. I think historically. Um, no, I think, um, the most interesting parallels for me in watching it, and as somebody who's been immersed in the world of AI for some time now is, um, that the parallels are not really to this to the to the substance of the physics vis-a-vis the AI. Uh it's really more in terms of the psychology of the characters. So the movie Oppenheimer is a movie about compartmentalization, um, in every form. Uh so I don't know if we'll go into I don't know if we need to go into spoilers. I mean a lot of this comes from common knowledge like that this man Oppenheimer was the father of the atomic bomb and he ran Los Alamos and like, you know, <laughs> it's nonfiction. Um, so I'm just going to assume general historical, I think knowledge of the belief. Yeah. We don't, we don't have to worry about um, spoilers. I we, need to le-
1: we need to leverage all these facts.
0: Yeah. Learn. Um, <laughs> there actually might be one specific, uh, example that I'll, I'll give a, a warning on before I get to it, uh, about that. Cause I think it's important, but for the, for the most part, um, what this movie is about, the way it's presented, is this is about a man who segmented many different parts of his life from each other, uh, and then tried to control and amalgamate them in the creation of a superweapon. So, his political identity, uh, the fact that he's possibly a closet communist or at least a leftist, but kind of ends up pulling it at arm's length in order to get invited on the Manhattan Project. Uh, he has multiple affairs with women, um, most notably Jean Tatlock, uh, but in a way that is not trivial with respect to the way in which he pursues the making of the bomb. In fact, he names the test site after a poem that she introduced him to when they were in the midst of their affair. The Trinity comes from a poem, uh, by John Donne. Um, he's emotionally segmented. Many of his relationships uh, reflect his inability to engage people as a complete human being. Uh, This is reflected in his Jewishness, which is very much at stake in some of his relationships. and very much completely absent from others in the way that he performs. Uh, He's institutionally a man of many different affiliations. He's an academic. He's also uh, a military leader, arguably. He's, He's indoctrinated in the military When he's indoctrinated in the project, um, he becomes more of a civil society leader after the war, um, as well as a government insider. You know, these are all many different worlds that the movie, I think, very effectively shows are things that he kept apart from each other, but that the creation of the weapon uh, forces him to reconcile, forces him to deal with the consequences of this kind of fracturing. And that, I think,
1: is is it a personal or a like a professional reckoning like like
0: what is the manner? Of that? I think it's primarily personal. I think that it's primarily personal and he was able to sublimate personal issues and tensions in his psyche into this agenda, this world historical event. And so there's a there's a paradox that maybe he was the only one to really achieve this and could have achieved it in that moment, but at great cost to himself and ultimately, I think, to the world because, yeah, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. But I just want to make clear that I think the more interesting parallels between that moment and now are that that same spirit of compartmentalizing, dissociating, uh, separating off politics from economics and separating off who designs these technologies and who is impacted by them uh, and what form those interfaces are allowed to take, or if they take any form. I think those are the more interesting parallels. So beyond the substance of like nukes vis-a-vis AGI, what we're dealing with is uh, a kind of gestalt, a kind of tension in in us, in the self, about what is the good society? And that's if we had a good answer to that. I think actually AI would be pretty easy to build, uh, but we don't.
1: And, and like, how do you see the interface between the like, public nature of the Manhattan Engineering District, the Manhattan Project, versus like these private companies building AI? Well, is that kind of at the axis there?
0: Hmm. So I I think that comes down to the meaning of the word public. I mean, of course, historically, Los Alamos at the time was completely shut off from the outside world. So although it was technically run by the US military, um, really in no meaningful sense of the term was it public. Although I think the movie does a good job of showing how that was a joke because the scientists are all talking uh, to each other. You know, There's this whole scene where they show how the, the military wants to separate. The people working on the explosion it comes up a lot. The people working on that, right that, that it, it shows that, and that's that's accurate, is my
1: understanding. I, I mostly just trying to drive them like, how does how is AI being compartmentalized? Like, is it the same?
0: Well, I think it's be had? yeah. I think that the way AI is being compartmentalized is we're often we often spend much of our time talking about models when we don't spend very much time talking about systems. And models are not real, but systems are right. So a lot of these, like just very basic confusions, the fact that chat GPT is not a model, it's an interface, right? GPT three, GPT four are not systems. They're just models. The reason this giant generative AI boom is going on is because I think for reasons, very few were able to predict the matching. Of those models with relatively powerful but abstract capabilities, harnessing that into a user interface uh, in this very seductive, potent way captures the imagination of the public, and business models just grow overnight for investing in this stuff. It's a runaway feedback loop, and that's 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 very similar to a bomb because basically that's what a nuclear bomb is. It's a rat's a runaway feedback loop. It's a chain reaction, but I think the the seed of it lies not in the fact that physics is anything like AI because we have very little idea what the mechanisms are behind how or why AI works at scale whereas we do with physics. I think the reason there's that parallel is that runaway feedback reflects our own very confused, ambivalent, and as I've said, compartmentalized relationship with the technology where we think that it's okay to just disrupt our lives every few months with new deployments despite having very little understanding of what the consequences will be. And that's what the movie's about. about.
1: Do you think there are companies
0: engaging in this? Like, I, I almost
1: think that from a product point of view, we're not really getting this rap. Like maybe on the product side, there's this rapid feedback, but on the model side and like, in terms of the research these companies are doing, I think a large proportion of it is just kind of trying to move forward. Kind of ir- irrespective of the system still. Like I, 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 not that well plugged into the open AI right now, but I would guess on the mm-hmm. ground there, it's still more about building the next model. Like, like GPT 4 is done, and it's about building the best. next uh, model. Absolutely. Which, with, with, which then, they're not necessarily coupled. They're coupled intellectually, by which I would guess GPT 5 It's like, you have iPhone 11, you have iPhone 11S. Like, GPT 5 is probably going to be built on the same ar- architecture and infrastructure, because they're inherently going to have a lot to exploit there. But that's not a rapidly... Like that's not a self like, telling feedback loop. It, it could be, they could have some weird RL, like some reinforcement learning training that is doing that. But I think that's much slower and much smaller than the like fundamental data and infrastructure.
0: Well, I, I think that's right. I mean, to clarify what I was saying about feedback, I think a lot of the runaway feedback loop effects that are pernicious or not well understood or misaligned happen at the level of the market rather than an individual company, right? We talk about there's an enormous amount of hand-wringing over how do we evaluate, how does my company evaluate my model, right? To see if it, you know, is safe or unsafe according to metrics and according to benchmarks and according to whatever, whatever. But we don't really talk very much about how well the ecosystem in which these models are being built is moving so quickly and incentivized to, uh, you know, anticipate market demand at such a scale that even regulators have very little or no understanding of, that there's really no one monitoring. I mean, yeah, we talk about alignment as as if it's some kind of abstract theoretical technical description of these things that are built in-house, when alignment, the substance of it, is really about the relationship between what's being built and what will be impacted. And in many ways, the market is, I think, the more important interface for that. that what I'm talking about there is the competitive dynamics between these companies uh, and also across these companies and to some extent within these companies, but I think even between these companies is much more much more pertinent here. Um, that's the conversation that I think everyone is sensing needs to be had, but there, there isn't yet a, really a place to have it, at least not rigorously. And that's what the movie is tapping into, because what the movie is showing ultimately is that that's the... Be- so it's a be- there's a bit of a cinematic spoiler i guess in this in the story of the movie so uh, you can you can take that into consideration before i say it but in the structure of the movie it's very good at this because it shows how initially oppenheimer is possibly concerned as you alluded to earlier in that we might explode the atmosphere by setting off one of these weapons there might be an uncontrolled reaction that takes that form uh when at the end of the movie actually the payoff is No, the actual chain reaction that's going to destroy the world is this geopolitical dynamic between the US and the Soviet Union. That's the chain reaction that's been set off here. The physics part of it is not where the feedback loop becomes toxic. It's the societal part of it where it becomes toxic. The fact that there is no monopoly on who can build this technology. We can't really trust the people building it. And even if we could, they're so incentivized to beat the other side Its own game that validation is always going to be given short shrift to what can be deployed, and that's very similar to our world. Uh, and that does come, I think, from the spirit of compartmentalize. we compartmentalize the substance of the tech from the consequences of building the tech.
1: I mean, I'm ultimately of the side that I don't really think you can put the AI genie back in the bottle, and even now, like, I think the level of investment into generative AI broadly, like. The motion has been started and it's mm -hmm. it's almost like the fact that in my mind when given the fact that there was a war when the theoretical physics showed that you could build a nuclear bomb given that it seemed almost inevitable that someone would build a bomb if it was in the time of around peace which was kind of like those two are coupled it's like peace and (laughs) the nuclear bomb are coupled in a way i think but like Given those contexts, it's like the level of investment is now self-fulfilling. Like the timing has been created.
0: Uh, I think I agree with half of that. My attitude towards that is maybe a bit more agnostic in the sense that, again, and the movie I think does show this effectively, the debate that shapes most of the movie is um, whether it's enough to build fission weapons or fusion weapons right? So there is this two-tiered step. Fission weapons were already, you know, over like several orders of magnitude stronger than any conventional weapon that had ever been created. Um, But it is in fact true to the history, and the movie shows this, that there was a a coalition of scientists, and frankly later what we would now call the military-industrial complex, pushing for saying, um, actually, okay, the genie is out of the bottle, the Soviets are going to build this too, so what we need... Is weapons that are so powerful that when you set one off, you're not just destroying a mid-sized industrial city, you're destroying a part of a country, basically. Uh, you're you're and and in the movie, I think there's a line a character compares it to just like this is a weapon of mass genocide. This is not even a weapon of war anymore. So I think for me, I think there's an open question now of if we're in a post-gen AI world and there's nothing we can do about that. Are there still latent takeoff scenarios, thresholds, periods of just complete uh, disruption that are so incommensurate with whether it's democratic society, whether it's uh, you know some proportion of misinformation relative to what we could think is true? Uh, what are the normative ratios by which our lives can even remain coherent? And are there certain deployments of AI at scale that we can't guarantee against with respect to those things? I think there's maybe a parallel there that's interesting, but it's very difficult to answer, uh, because we're in such a new, we're in such a new moment.
1: And does that kind of like, I feel like that's probably my big, like nod to AI safety as a field that's needed, uh, and kind of the power dynamics that all these things that you talk about emerge. So like how monetary capture and market sizes and stuff go into this as like, is that the center of your kind of interest in AI safety? Cause I think we're both, we both are people that acknowledge its importance, but are not centering our work and our views of AI and like how we want the field to emerge around that. We think there's a bigger picture than it.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, yeah, I'm sure we'll maybe share a lot more over time about our our kinds of relationships with ai safety and why i have and continue to constructively collaborate and research with that community at the same time that much of my work is not reducible to it yeah my way of saying it again is that um i want systems that are safe i think that should be a concerted research agenda i think it's not really clear right now what the criteria for safety are i mean the way i alluded to it
1: it's like do you think most people are making grounded decisions on what they research based on these kind of assumptions and like where we are in these takeoff scenarios. It's like, there's like this metaphor you could draw to fusion and hydrogen. And we're at this point where these models are big. It's Like, What is driving the consciousness of researchers broadly to engage in these topics? Like what is the driving onboarding into something like AI safety research? Was it a trickle? Is it something like GBT-4?
0: I do still believe that most of the takeoff scenarios for AI that have been thought about, researched, published on, envisioned, are more reflective of the psychologies of the researchers than of the actual objective likelihood of the scenarios being envisioned. That doesn't mean the scenarios might not end up mattering, it just means that They remain largely ungrounded from anything testable, anything verifiable, anything, you know, grounded in the reality of these scenarios. So that's, again, part of this question of like, where should we look to for guidance on, uh, understanding the risks of increasingly capable systems. And that's, that's not like what happened in the Manhattan Project because we knew, what, we knew what the risks were. There was really no ambiguity over that. The ambiguity was over something more like, how much should we weigh those considerations against others? And so we're kind of two steps behind because we still don't really know how to do that. But we also don't really understand when or how certain critical thresholds of capability will move at.
1: Yeah. I'm kind of thinking about this psyche like this kind of subtle manipulation of what it, it's a function of the media sphere, the scientific sphere, how people are trained early in AI education and all of these things. I like lending back to the Oppenheimer analogy. It's like, it's new, like theoretical physics. It's very not public. I know in the movies, there's one scene where like, Oh, they split the atom and it comes up in the newspaper. But like, I, th- I think that is not really the case of how theoretical physics is. is emerging. What's... And now we have archive and we have the public, trying to engage i mean in public trying to fiddle and like the whole 17 year old Packer argument is one of my favorite ai safety arguments but like there's a much bigger dynamic
0: play there. i mean to tie off the yeah so like with the movie again um there are historians i think who argue that i mean one of the unique i think actually no one even argued this in an interview that he gave that Oppenheimer was the first scientist at least that we know of on record who immediately upon hearing that the atom had been split was like we need to build the bomb he was somehow the first to make that imaginative leap now whether you think that's a credit to his insight or to his own you know kind of pathology i think that's anybody's guess but i think that what the movie does very effectively is show how when you're living in the last days of an old order and a new one's being born the people who birth the new order Um, they bring their own baggage to the fore. And so even if nukes were inevitable, the terms on which they enter into the collective sense of what is at stake are really deeply idiosyncratically reflective of the people who were the ones to be in a position to do so. And actually, I think the movie, and this has been a um, spoiler tag, I guess, uh, so I'll just flag it this way, But I I noticed when watching the movie, so, you know, of course, we've not talked about it yet, but the last third of the movie, uh, where it's mostly a security hearing, is really critical to understanding the whole story because the whole movie is split between this, like there's this fission part, which is like the color version of, It's sort of suggested Oppenheimer's own subjective experience and recollection of his own life. And those are the parts you can see. Then there's this fusion part which is black and white, and largely said later in the context of Strauss's efforts to kind of undermine Oppenheimer. And I was watching it, and I noticed that there's a a moment where it shows very deliberately what the layout is of the security hearing room. Like It shows you they're constructing the table in this particular configuration. They're talking about who they're going to let into the room, where Oppenheimer will even be sitting. All of this is predetermined. And in the back of my mind, I sensed that There was something meaningful about that even though i couldn't consciously tell you what it was and a few days after watching it i realized that the layout of the security hearing room is a thermonuclear bomb so the way you build a thermonuclear weapon is that you need deuterium or tritium which is the t which is basically an isotope of hydrogen with extra neutrons in it and you need that to supply the fuel that when you bombard fissile material with energy sets off a chain reaction so in the scene where oppenheimer is being grilled to justify why not fusion why only fission you see the room like start to shake the energy starts to go off there's lights because he's the fissile material that's being split apart in terms of his own psyche his own personality his own justifications for his own life, in order to construct, fuse this interpretation of him as anathema to this new military industrial complex. What you're seeing in that scene is the fusion of that complex being borne out. And the beauty of it is that it's combining the physics, the politics, the sex, the economics, all of these things are happening in that room right at that present moment. And I think that that's what, for me, um, made it a truly powerful cinematic uh, experience is that it's it's part of Nolan's, I think, genius, I think. But anyway, I think that's really what's at stake right now with AI is we're living in a world where the people who are bringing this technology into possibility are somehow structuring it, encoding it, grafting it, soldering it through these interfaces onto our lives in ways that neither they nor us truly understand. And exactly what the consequences of that are will resonate in ways that we're only still now picking up the pieces on. Uh, but I think in order to understand it, it behooves us to understand not just mechanistically how that technology could be made to work, but psychologically what's driving it, what's pushing it, What could push it differently? And I think embrace the subjectivity in that. Anyway, I spoke a lot.
1: Yeah, the kind of last, like, embrace the subjectivity of that. And it's hard because the people who are driving this are driving companies. And I think when you are at the forefront of a company, like, you're disincentivized to have ambiguity over the direction that you're going. And therefore, it kind of eliminates a lot of the downwind people who would be reckoning with the ambiguity, whether whether the front is no longer acknowledging it. I think that's kind of there been reduced through a lot of the climate that we have in terms of research and things like that. I think the last thing to kind of discuss with respect to Oppenheimer is how that changed the political interface of science and kind of how the sort of public takedown of Oppenheimer is used to remove credibility of scientists as public figures that, that really held power in politics. And then where that leads us today, like in the revolution of technology, AI scientists are being brought into political structures earlier than they have with any other technological revolution. Yeah. So it's a, it's an opportunity to kind of walk some of that back. I don't know if it's good, but I, I see that happening. I think it's, I would lend it on the side of being better that governments are engaging with these people. But there's like new dynamics that we haven't really been working with, kind of since that time frame in terms of like Oppenheimer being such a public figure and the leading scientist, and now we're
0: kind of going back towards that. In my mind, that's well said. Yeah, it's interesting. So Oppenheimer is a lot the man. Oppenheimer was alive at a moment when science shifted its culture, like fundamentally from a world of, you know, really you had like a small group of collaborators, maybe with whom you wrote papers and either did experiments or developed new theoretical understandings of phenomena. That's, that's the old physics. The new physics brought with it, um, this culture of big science where you needed hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of collaborators to even get a new result, let alone a conclusive.
1: Like like the analogies here are striking. So then we have like the Turing Award trio who are the Einsteins of deep learning. Right. Like, like we have Lacoon, Hinton, and this is the third one. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, ben, is it not yeah, Benji? Yeah, Benji. Um, <laughs> we have these three who would be the Einsteins because Einstein discovered quantum mechanics. And then it was not his world to watch. Yeah, that's the- so. We're like in yeah. uh, we're in the transition period. I had to put this together until right now. i like those figures and like who thought... like like there's a lot of figures that are contending with the kind of Oppenheimer character, but I don't think Oppenheimer is successful without the Manhattan Project. So it's like we will know in decades who who that character is, kind of when there is some kind of or or will they really not? Like is it is it guaranteed that there will be that type of person that people look
0: to? Well, or will it be distributed? That's interesting. I mean, so we also have, yes, there's, so there's Einstein. I was laughing because, yeah, the movie has that line from, I think it's Niels Bohr, who says, you know, Einstein opened the door, but we have to walk through, it's a understand the quantum, I don't know if that, that might actually be a literal quote, it wouldn't surprise me, but yes, there was this, it's not a coincidence that, you know, Heisenberg, Oppenheimer, that crew were all like 21, 22 years old when they were writing the papers that are now the foundation of quantum theory, because it was a moment where if you were older than that, your brain literally was just like not like flexible enough because the, it was so counterintuitive in the old, in the old frame. And so we are living in an interesting moment where there are these, you know, yeah, you called them the Meinsteins, so I think the other term that gets his godfathers of AI, of deep learning. Einstein's uh, a little more mellow. I heard it's- Yeah. And I mean, you know, obviously, these are the personalities um, that that we've studied under, been in touch with. You know, I I was sort of based at Stuart Russell's lab for many years when I was at Berkeley. Um, we are in many ways. I mean, they they're the ones who survived, right? I mean, the other the other analogy here, they're the ones who survived the winter of you know the eighties and the and the decline and fall of expert systems, and they were the ones huddling around the flame of. It wasn't called deep learning at the time they rebranded it as deep learning but they huddled around this flame of machine learning at a time when you know that really was not a sexy thing to do and so we're really living in the residue of that of that so that's what I, that's that that is the parallel is that their their semantics their worldview, their psyches in many ways are what we are navigating today with scale and attention and data and layers like that's deep learning was uh, an amalgamation, a story of why it is meaningful and interesting to amalgamate those things in ways that may very well simulate the mechanisms of the human mind. We don't really know what the limits of that are. Um, but I think I I almost
1: find it more fun to talk about this. Like this is really this is the root of the Alchemy is like how the field is born. And it makes it more fun to talk about than if you're trying to do the same thing from theoretical physics, like there, like there's a different types of uncertainty in how the field was built it, like it, in the crowding moments, like in ImageNet and things. Like, it is a broad methodology and a timing in an infrastructure. It's like a broad methodology with infrastructure that is then
0: really the result of timing. It, it, and that has defined the field. Yeah, I mean, we can look forward to asking how to make it more scientific, but we can also look backward to asking what species of alchemy are we practicing, and how it, how does it work? And what what else could have been pursued, or what are the assumptions really that guided its creation? And that's not a critique, exactly. I mean, it, but it does suggest um, there's a there's a flavor of arbitrariness behind the way in which much of this work is is built. There's a lot more I could say about that. There's even more recent, you know, the the, the ways in which different research strands percolate across each other um, in ways that. You know, are, are unexpected. Um, that's very much part of the culture of AI. Uh, I was thinking. Yeah, it's like when things are arbitrary, it's hard to make them
1: robust. Or like, like, like I literally encounter hypotheses so rarely on my day-to-day basis that putting a hypothesis in something about AI is really more of a joke than a than a piece of that, like something that people use. So it's like I, I like I I use that in my talks to be like, yeah, it'd be great if we did this. Like, this is where we want to go. But it's almost like. You use that as the shining light to get to the first step, which is transparency, and kind of accept that we're really never going to have any scientific method. There's
0: a we were taught. there's a scene in the movie where Oppenheimer is talking to his future wife, Kitty, and she describes these previous relationships she had and why they were either worth holding totally on to or not, or why she had to move on in the way that she did. And she says, well, you know, it was pragmatism. And then, like, in a, a scene shortly after that, Oppenheimer is describing... Um, I think justifying why they're going to pursue fission bombs before fusion bombs at Los Alamos. And he says like, well, you know, since we're going to need fusion to make, we're since we're gonna need fission to make a fusion bomb anyway. Um, this it's for the sake of pragmatism, I think we should pursue just a fission weapon. And so like, I think the work that pragmatism is doing in that case is interesting, right? Because it is a call for just making progress, but it's motivated as much by the quirks. Well, you guys see that as what we're doing with
1: language models right now. It's like language models are like the entry point of something extremely powerful that'll change a lot of technological relationships. And then, given the like kind of basic reasoning capacity and like the basic abilities that they enable, it's just like they're essentially the brain-machine interface of AI with the internet. Where like brain-machine interfaces for humans are a little ridiculous, but with digital systems, like the language model is the interface with the internet. And therefore the things you can build on top of that are where things become much more profound, profound and harder to and harder to reason with. I
0: think the hydrogen bomb is impossible to reason. With. And consequential. Right. Well we've never used a hydrogen bomb at war. We've we've only ever tested them in these um, these, you know, hypothetical cases. And actually, you know, we know that there are some there were some radiation deaths just indirectly due to those things. But they've never been used anymore. Um Oppenheimer of course thought that they never should be used in war because that's just it, it would be a non sequitur that nuclear weapons should only ever be, be tactical um, and used to target military sites uh, if 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 ever right that, that there's no target there's no target big enough to justify the use of a thermonuclear weapon right so I think that's a question that is a question for AI right now what is the target big enough to justify an unprecedentedly capable language model beyond even the ones we're seeing right now. Uh it's like the, the level of investment is searching for that.
1: And this is what cap like, like capitalistic economies do. Like they will create something. They may all fail and leave away artifacts for next generation of companies come. Or they succeed and then the kind of investment model is validated.
0: There are I mean, yeah, we're living through so I guess the term for this would be maybe a creative destruction type moment where Capital investment is so intensively targeted right now on gen AI language model type stuff. Um, it's very likely to pan out one way or another. It's interesting. It's very hard to predict when or how that'll happen. Um, but it's really that culture that we're grappling with right now and whether or not, or what kinds of limits, (laughs) uh, we need to be set on that culture, uh, in order to proceed responsibly. And again, if AI were a science. I think it would be possible to have that conversation, but it's not. It's gi- it's a giant engineering experiment, basically that we're just throwing money at and single. Like, well, this is like
1: my last link to Oppenheimer's, where it's like Oppenheimer's and the security hearings are like the takedown of the public scientist, and like now we have credibility and AI being built primarily around academic institutions. And that's where people's careers start in a lot of ways. So it's good to see that there are other things. But at the same time, these institutions and the people practicing at them are like going through the existential crisis of what, like how AI should be communicated in terms of like the, the fact that there's like all the conferences are kind of failing in terms of the individual, like the individual, all, all individuals, all have gripes. Archive is very useful. And it's like, I, I, as someone who has a background, has like some sort of baseline, I don't need the institutions. And like, what do all these things mean? Like, this is the thing that I'm trying to figure out in career, in life, in what AI means. And like, that was one of my big takeaways from seeing the movie.
0: That's very interesting. I mean, my way of putting that is that, you know, what Oppenheimer was grappling with historically was the emergence of this kind of unaccountable military industrial complex, right. That was named by Eisenhower in his farewell address, but like that was new that didn't, that really did not previously exist at scale until the events of that film, the the events of that film sort of tell the story of its emergence in some ways. Um, I think to name it and it's uncomfortable to do so, but I think it needs to be named. I think what we're dealing with right now in AI is the preponderance of an academic industrial complex where the careers of prominent researchers start in elite institutions where they are in credibility and status and networking. And you and I also reflect that, but many people in the world reflect this. And then many of them often go off to industry where they are given enormous resources and capital investment and data and compute and all sorts of things to basically work out in practice these assumptions that they acquired. Uh, in these elite academic settings, but it's not really clear what the ground is on which either those assumptions or that investment stands. But it's this feedback between both of those things that I think is engendering so much confusion, and so much conflict.
1: Yeah, and it's the feedback with respect to the third population that's everyone else. So like these, these companies are now intentionally withholding the information to the point where people are trying to track the like the intellectual flow of popular language model ideas like speculative decoding which is the idea that you can kind of more efficiently decode a large model by using a small model to like kind of guide it it's a form of rejection sampling for large language models i was literally at a party at icml where someone was asking me like who at hugging face figured out how to implement this into their like text generation inference library because they're trying to figure out the time frame by which information passes from these big companies to everyone else, and and therefore then you have everyone else that has a partial view of information, and there are kind of the influencers who are peddling this partial view of information as its own narrative, and then like what is the balance between what is actually happening in the labs, their ability to obscure progress, and then the powerful narrative that is the long tail of people trying to make stronger AIs a reality, and. It, I like, I always downcast the ability to obscure information, but I think that there might, like, if there are negative actors in the yeah. space of what information they release, they probably have a lot more power to guide this kind of external narrative than they'd think.
0: I think what's not clear right now is where is the public and what is the role in public in these deliberations? Because as this feedback loop propagates and intensifies, um, We know this from history, the check on that, you know, there, there's always some new group of technocrats or experts or scientists who are commandeering this historical process. And it, you know, at least in a democracy, it's, it's not that that can be prevented because new technologies, you know, new disruptions are always going to come about. Um, But the check on that ultimately is democratic accountability, whether that's by means of the vote, whether that's by means of, you know, just civil society discussion, dissent in different forms. Um, And right now, what we're living through is a moment where the people in these camps are in a position to propagate metaphors, ways of speaking, ways of, you know, the metaphors say being AGI, take off, uh, bias, all sorts of things, right? And in fact, the ability for the public to even articulate and deliberate on these issues on its own terms. And if anything, this is the question for me, how would you reverse that feedback loop or instead it's the public that's somehow in a position to lead or check. What can be said and how it's said about the capabilities, so that it's even possible to say what a good or a bad use of them might be because it, because it's the opposite that's happening right now. And I don't know what the answer to that is. But that, that's going to be coming to a head.
1: Yeah. And it's that they've been removed from the conversation and development for so long. Like, industry has been the dominant player in machine learning developments. And that is okay when you're not as invested. But then, when you're invested, you don't have the tools to A, understand what they're actually saying, and B, impact it. Like, there's kind of that long delay before the the fall of AI into an economic thing that big tech is doing.
0: It's like that delay made it even easier for this to have to happen. We've inherited a culture that, yes, set us up to speak on behalf of the interests of constituents that our own technologies are bringing into being. So the public is something that is trying to make sense of itself in relation. To some disruption, whether it's a technology, an event, you know, there's some constituency brought into being by these things. But we've inherited roles that tell us you should just already be starting to, in effect, conduct PR around your tool, even as you build the tool. And what that has done is it's created, again, this kind of runaway feedback effect where the public gets more and more scared as you're. Technology progresses as you try to control and, you know, articulate.
1: Who do we think? I guess at some point we'll have to define groups of what a public means because a lot of the people that will listen to this will be, we're all part of this public in some way. But I think a lot of the listeners are still going to be one step removed from people that are also heavily impacted. And then there's kind of like the public practitioner. There's like, the practitioner is almost
0: adjacent to developments and they're trying to use it. There's more than one. I mean, this is reflected in my own work for sure, but I think it's critical to understand that there is more than one public yeah at the stake here and I mean, you know what we're trying to do right now is reach you know one of those publics, actually which is the public of like practitioners, designers, you know, so on people
1: who you know like what one manifests is, like we're we're almost an hour and it's like like what are the people that need this like why? How does reckoning with the power structures make you create systems that are better? Like, um, What is the practice by which we're kind of reaching in a way? It's like well, we're saying that these issues are a thing. And it's like, what do we actually do with this? Um, this is kind of my internal question as well.
0: I think it's a good question. I mean, I think part of this, though, is just sort of learning... We have to figure out a way to name these issues in a way that's not condescending or not purporting to delimit. Like we're just trying to make sense of these issues. And I think that whether that's through the movie, whether that's through, you know, specific papers or events that we'll discuss, I think that's the idea is that like, what are the features of this landscape that are being highlighted by these events? And how do we just create space for grappling with those things? And I I think until you do that and have that space to explore, um, like that's how publics congeal. And I think that's also how praxis reveals itself—is like what what actually can be done in this situation, or like needs to be done. Um, So it's it's a little bit complicated. I mean, I maybe was being a little bit too much of a theorist, you know, parts of that conversation, just because I have my own sort of like understandings or assumptions about you know where this could go or where it. it, (laughs) It kind of needs to go, but yeah, I think it's, um, we want to, I mean, I would like to have, a, a more egalitarian, or free flowing energy. I think in these conversations where we're not purporting to judge particular like actors we're trying to, you know, it's sort of a love the warrior, hate the war type of ceiling that I have, I think about a lot of this stuff. Yeah, and I like, for me,
1: it's a lot of these institutional discussions are either directly or indirectly impacting the debate of like what research is doing and the derivative of it in terms of AI and how it's obvious that research is withdrawing and receding in terms of the conversation by the largest players stopping effectively. The policies at Google are like, if you show big language model results, you probably won't publish it. and with these players retracting, it's like, what is the next equilibrium? Yeah. I like, like as trying to provide impetus to maintain some sort of academic community as a way to kind of keep progress going in a certain direction. And if this investment kind of totally goes away, and if these dynamics go to a certain extreme, like, it seems like a world that I would less like to live in. And then kind of reckoning with how all of this manifests into it many small decisions
0: and what to work on. And I mean, yeah, I think that's the, the question is sort of like, is the world that is being created by our own practices, one that we actually wouldn't want to spend much time in? Right. Like, like let's, let's even cutting past the ADI stuff. It's just sort of like, yeah, I mean, you wrote that piece, What was it like several months ago now? What is it like to work in AI these days? I mean, is it like just may take takeaway that like kind of sucks? <laughs> <laughs> that's really exhausting and draining and like tiring and confusing.
1: Yeah, I think the implicit takeaway is that people don't know what they're working for and they're working for a, not necessarily God, they're working for something, some, like some power they view that is impacting what they choose to work on that is not necessarily aligned in values that they were brought up on. And then there is a dissonance, there that there's some like long-term value that you think what you're doing will be a proxy for it in the long term but i think in the short term people are kind of scrambling and feel not good because there's such a disconnect
0: yeah i mean do you mean that more on the level of like my personal autonomy is what's at stake or my commitments to something more like democracy or equality are what may be on the chopping block as a downstream effect of what I'm doing or asked to do.
1: I think that's the, like, I don't know, and I think that's the, probably what people are saying. I see. It's like they realize they're in something extremely powerful, but they do not have the ability to, like, like it's hard to reckon with what the impacts could be. And therefore, it's easy to maintain the course that most people are doing, but with what? Consequence? And like, with a lot of people being burnt out it's like burnout is a result of generally the simple thing is working too hard but the complex thing is what misaligned incentives get you there
0: right well i think people can work extremely hard on things if they have a good reason for doing them um extremely i mean again like los Alamos, people were working extremely hard for several years on something very abstract uh, but, but actually all the anecdotes are that people had the time of their lives at Los Alamos during the war. It was amazing for them because they were doing the world's biggest, you know, physics experiment like ever. Um, it was, it was astounding. It was a stunning place to be. And that, that's a major difference than today, where I think it's not really clear towards what end am I being asked to do this stuff? And to the extent to which I think I know what the answer is, it makes me deeply uncomfortable. Um, like that's a shift. We these are not actually like scientifically framed problems. They're much more like I'm maximizing a KPI or something, um, and like why? Like is that even the one it should be? Shouldn't it be something else maybe? Because um, there are these yeah. sh- at the end the, the scenes in the movie that are brilliant where like the, you see these younger grad students holding these like impromptu like seminars in Los Alamos, like the societal consequences of the bomb or something like that, not Opera like crashes one of them. I've been in those situations where like you have a senior AI person like crashing a meeting that's really meant to be more like a closed door session of most people hand about like what the hell are we doing? Um, and that dynamic is quite, that dynamic is quite similar. It's the world building capacity of AI today that resonates with what physics was doing, but not the science and not, many other of like the substance of like what's going on there
1: yeah and i would kind of say that this is what this is why we're starting the, this podcast the retort to kind of try to bring each of us into these conversations we're seeing from one side and then like giving the ability for people to actually understand this dynamic it's they the kind of in between the line dynamics of ai that are happening and the values we are reckoning with there so I think it's kind of a good place to wrap up this dirate, tirate, whatever you want to call it. The dirate is uh, funny. I like to make up words and people will figure that out. I'm less of a mispronouncer and more of a word-making-upper. So that's a, that's a fun problem to have. Bye for now. Bye, top.